Welcome back. We are uh, doing this Divorcing the Business Owner and Entrepreneur webinar. Uh, this is the first session of the uh, webinar. Uh, we're going to talk about beginning the process, how to operate during divorce when there's a closely held small business. So I'm joined by uh, Robert Bales, who is a CPA, by Jerry Height, who is a shareholder, a partner in our, in our law firm, and by Ryan Siegel, who's an attorney in our law firm. And so we're just going to kind of start. All right, guys, uh, chime in when you're ready. So start with preparation for divorce. Um, you have somebody that, that hollers out at you and says, hey, I'm thinking about getting a divorce, but we've got this business. What's the first thing that you tell them to do, Robert? Well, as a CPA, the first thing I tell them to do is get one of you guys. <laughs> we love that. <laughs> um, Call a lawyer. But one thing I do encourage them to do is not operate their business any differently than they did when things were good in the marriage uh, to make sure they don't do anything inappropriate because there will be orders associated with how they operate it. Sure. Uh, sure. What about you, Jerry? What's the, what's the first thing you tell somebody when they say, hey, I might get a divorce and I've got a business? Well, I have a lot of follow-up questions, of course, of but course. the first thing I'd like from the client is some basic documentation to figure out when this business started, uh, who owns this business, uh, and uh, um, what nature of the business is it, because uh, what I really worry about as a practitioner and want to advise them on are issues such as characterization and potential valuation problems, and until I get a little information from the client, I'm just firing in the dark. And so it's hard for me to advise them on what kind of case we're looking at until it gives me a little information up front. Sure. And what so, about you, Ryan? So I'll take what Jerry says and do it one further. What I always tell the clients is start to really categorize your expenditures with the business. I think that's very important because you're going to be dealing, especially in very small businesses where someone's making maybe making personal expenses as well as uh, business-related expenses and dividing those is a nightmare and and they need to start getting that together so that they make sure hey we can classify these as personal expenses these as business expenses so when someone like Robert comes in and does evaluation of the business those sort of things um, are classified already so I think that's a good way to start off things so taking kind of from what all three of you said I think you know one of the most important things to me is to start out kind of from the informational standpoint of asking what type of business is it um, because for me and, and I'm sure for you guys you know the the what's the next question is different if it's a sole proprietorship versus if it's a corporation versus if it's a partnership versus if it's a professional corporation like a doctor or you know something else I mean you know um, uh, so for me I, I think the first thing that I want to know is what type of business are we dealing with you know are we dealing with um, you know somebody who is a mechanic at their house and calls that a business but it's really a sole proprietorship are we dealing with you know with a, a partner in a law firm you know, what, what type of entity are we dealing with? Does that make sense? Yes, um, because with a professional practice 
a doctor, dentist, attorney, you know, have a tremendous personal goodwill factor, and it's going to mm-hmm. diminish the value sure. of the entity or the equity in the entity. Yeah. And you need to know that. But on the flip side, if it's a company that has large profits, doesn't pay much cash out, large value, you're going to find out we've got something that's going to be very, very difficult to divide. And now that we've lost the alimony deduction, much more difficult to settle. Yeah. So, yeah, I think the the nature and composition of the business is very important. Right. And and I think, what, you know, like with a sole proprietorship, there's, you know, there's the operational it is usually looser with a sole proprietorship. And so there's, to me, some concerns about how are we going to make money going forward? How are we going to protect that source of income? You know, if it's a, a closely held corporation, one of the first things I'm going to ask is, who all works there? Do you and your wife both run this thing together? Or are you partners with her brother? Or, you know, who is it that's involved in this? So you can kind of start getting, you know, a handle on the pieces. Because like, so this, this session of our webinar is about before you file for divorce. And so it's like trying to get your hands on like all these moving parts to get a, a sense of what's going on. Um, what about Jerry, what do you tell a client in that kind of initial informational session about you know how is the business going to operate while we're getting a divorce well i think courts and i advise them to do this not always followed but uh and kind of what robert said earlier uh, maintain the status quo uh, don't all of a sudden take a hard left or right because you're in divorce land or thinking about divorce land uh, one, the court's going to hold it against you if all of a sudden you start radically doing different things than you were doing two weeks prior to filing for divorce. And then during the divorce, you know, you want to maintain it as an operating and going business. I don't feel comfortable ever advising a client, oh, turn down a business opportunity uh, because you don't want to, you know, we want to have a lower value on this business. Uh, I mean, that'll come back to haunt you. That opportunity might never come back for that person. So, you know, keep running it like you've been running it. Keep going along the same. Uh, don't clean house, don't start firing employees. Where I find it trickiest is when the two spouses meaningfully share roles in the business. Because as their personal lives fall apart, it's very hard for people not to start having that strain in the business as well. And that's where I've had hearings where you're determining, let's go to court and figure out who's gonna run this thing for the next Mm -hmm. six to nine months. It's normally that situation. It's where you have two people who have a legitimate claim to saying, I can run this myself. We can't agree on the color of the sky right now. We can't do it together. And and that's kind of where you have a flashpoint. So so take that that situation where you've got both husband and wife operating the business, you know, dividing duties of whatever's going on in the business. You know, what do you tell one or the other of them when they come to talk to you about before the divorce and divorce preparation you know what do you talk about what are your talking points well i tell them if they're if they both operate the business but one has a better understanding of the finances of the business and that's that other spouse's role i tell them you need to become very knowledgeable about the finances of this business uh sometimes they come in and complain well i think money's being siphoned off or i think inappropriate expenses and so forth are being paid through the business uh, that can all be cleaned up but not until 
the person I'm meeting with has some idea of what's happening, more, more so than just here's last year's income statement for the business. I mean, more of a here's cash flow on a, on a month-to-month basis and what's happening. And when I start hearing what's going on and you get more details, that's when you have to make some decisions. You know, do we need to get some injunctions in place to limit what these people are doing with this business? Do we need to try to move somebody out of the business if we think they're, what they're doing is fraudulent on behalf of um, the other spouse? Uh, and, and so it's kind of triaging, are we going to have an emergency situation where uh, we need to be prepared to immediately approach the court to try to lock things down uh, and maintain control? And one thing that I've that we were talking about earlier actually is the fact that you don't want to change anything especially when talking about legal agreements you know you don't want to be entering into a you know a shareholders agreement three days before you file for divorce right. and, and that's going to lead to you know some sort of fraud situation in which the court will probably hammer you for it and, and and it can certainly be construed as fraud one way or the other, whether it be actual or constructive. But you know, the you don't want to get into those situations, and you want to make sure that, as both of these guys said, you want to continue with what's been happening, and you don't want to change anything, whether it be doing legal documents or not, because that would, in fault, in fact, raise some questions to, for the court. What about the spouse? Let's set up a scenario like you have the spouse and it's their company. um, And just for purposes of of putting some labels on it, we'll say the man owns the company and the wife is an employee but not an owner of the company, although it is community property. And she kind of runs the office staff and keeps the books and that type of thing. But he's the one that's you know, earning the goodwill. Maybe he's a realtor or a doctor or a dentist, or we've had all of those scenarios. Um, And so you, 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 starting with the husband who owns the company, any different advice you'd give him than you'd give to her about the pre-divorce, you know, about to file process? When the scenario you, you just described, what I always tell them is get all the financial records archived that you possibly can. And that's it, advice either way, right? Either, either way. Spouse. Either way. Gather financials. Because they tend to Change. migrate. <laughs> migrate. <laughs> and I think if you can go ahead and get backups of the accounting software, um, copies of bank statements, things of that nature, you're going to be way ahead of the game once the process starts. So you don't have to try to go get it through discovery, uh, sometimes unsuccessfully. Sure. And so for either spouse, the the gathering of information, I think for me, that's one of the keys, even if there's not a a business, but in that pre-divorce, you know, what are things that I can do to get ready for divorce? To me, that's one of the important ones is gathering your information, especially about finances and assets and debts and all of that. So for a business, I, I guess when you own a business, it'd be even more important. And would that be a time when it would be helpful to know, like in advance, these are the list of documents that the CPA is going to want to, you know, when they start through the valuation process? Yes, valuation <laughs> or tracing, whether yeah. it's characterization. In fact, lately, uh, it's not unusual for us to be engaged pre-divorce and come up with tracing and valuation conclusions before they ever file the divorce. So they know what to expect when they get into it. 
Yeah, and I've done some of that too, especially where you represent the business owner um, because you can, you can anticipate and you have access to all the information needed for evaluation like that, where you can do an early valuation to try to keep the lid a little bit more on the divorce process, um, possibly if that's possible An- another piece of advice i would give them that may be different than what you guys would give them because mm-hmm. i see the world different different that's, that, hey, that's why you're here the table. Uh, <laughs> if you're going to owe some tax pay it before the divorce is filed so you don't have some kind of standing order that prevents you or makes it more difficult for you to get things of that nature taken care of I, and, and I like that because that kind of leads me into, you know, heading toward our next topic in this, which is, okay, we're about to file for divorce. What should they expect? And so in many of the counties in Texas, we have what's called a standing order. And that is a what I'd call a do-right list of, of orders that courts enter automatically when a divorce petition is filed and they apply to both parties equally. In counties that don't have a standing order, we have the standard uh, temporary restraining order that's provided for in the family code. And ideally, those both, both a standing order and the standard TRO should be relatively the same. Um, but it, it kind of has some specific requirements about, you know, don't go paying unnecessary debt, don't go running up the credit cards, don't go to Neiman's and buy out the store, don't go buy a new bass boat. Um, but it also at the end says you can still you um, pay reasonable and necessary business expenses, reasonable and necessary living expenses, and attorney's fees. So, um, so what you're saying is that you're, you advise people to kind of go ahead and pay the taxes or pay some of these things that need paying before the divorce is filed and the standing orders are in place. Uh, and I, one of the reasons I say that is I've seen a lot of judges, and I will make mention no names, um, who go a little bit beyond the standing order mm-hmm. and make it impossible to pay these bills with some draconian orders during the pendency yeah. of the divorce. And if you get stuck with a court that's looking at it from that perspective, you could end up with some trouble in the way you operate your business and how you deal with the IRS and other things. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I don't think the standing order prohibits paying taxes right. for your business. It's the temporary orders mm-hmm. where the judge looks at cash flow and says, you have, you're obligated to do all these things, and paying the business taxes isn't one of them. Yeah. And so they don't get paid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, mm-hmm. that's a real concern. Would you recommend they pay other debts? I would recommend paying anything you think that possibly yeah. that court might prevent you from, from paying. paying and to consult with your attorney who's going to know the judge Mm -hmm. because all all the judges tend to have different views of this. Mm -hmm. And if you've got a judge that really puts the screws down tight on the money, you need to get anything taken care of you possibly can before that thing's filed. Right, because what's going to happen is the client's not going to pay those debts. They're going to have their temporary orders hearing. And there's going to be a pot of cash. There's going to be a pot of cash, which is supposed to go to the debt. Now it's going to having to take care of two different households. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be your problem. Right. So, So, and just to be clear, I mean, you know, let's say that the corporation or the business has a pot of cash, also known as retained earnings. 
and it's sitting in the business. I mean, technically the judge is not supposed to be able to touch that, but the judge can order the spouse who is in control of the business to pay spousal support and child support and bills and this and that and the other that will take the availability of that money away from the availability to pay the debts. That's right. Yeah. So that's where it can create the problem is kind of the pot of cash problem. And, uh, and if you need to pay your debts or you've got, you've been saving it for your taxes or, you know, your 941s or something, you need to go ahead and take care of that before you have the pot of cash sitting there for grabs in the temporary orders hearing. Yeah. And another, another thing we see a lot is people in cyclical businesses that have a pot of cash ready for the next cycle yep. that's going to eat money yep. and they need to go ahead and prepay whatever need they need to prepay to get through that cycle yeah. so the court can't create a problem for that yeah right. yeah absolutely what if you were rep, what if you were advising the other spouse the non-business owner spouse who has access to some financial information and says hey i think there's a pot of cash there and um you know how do we preserve the pot of cash in the business so that we can have it available for him to take out and support me with file well <laughs> file asap i mean that's i mean in all reality that's what has to happen and tro's i mean that probably to me would go beyond a standard tro i would agree i mean I, that might be a place to include the business as a party well certainly if you have any evidence that there's been some odd financial transfers and you can show that to the court yes i would go and i'd sue the business and try to lock the whole thing down yeah yeah and so lock the whole thing down is is short short words for get a TRO, yeah, sue the business, get an injunction against the business and the owner right. that would prevent them from whatever you can think of to prevent them from um, to preserve the cash as much as possible. And see, I would look at it strictly as a CPA. <laughs> I would tell them, don't screw up the golden goose. Yep and don't be taking cash out of this thing that's going to be worth a lot of money and if you make it to where it cannot operate properly you're not going to get the value for it that you would otherwise mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so you got to be careful when you start going after that pot of cash right right because it reduces the ultimate value of the business correct um and so that um I, you know i think that's an important kind of long-term strategy short-term versus long-term strategy that may have some dichotomy there um, in advising the non-owner spouse because it's a question of do you want to grab cash now or do you want it to be worth more in the long run so that you get a bigger settlement or a bigger division at the end yeah oh definitely yeah there's just they're so fact intensive because the nature of the entity is going to determine a lot of this. Sure. The ownership interest is going to determine a lot of this. Uh, control determines a lot of this. So how big you need to open the door depends on uh, is this is this a 100% owned you know family type business, uh, whether sole proprietorship where everything's on the table, assets right. included, or uh, or you know like an S corp, or is it you know is it a you know, uh, are there 10 partners and it's, you know, it's, it's it, his own partners give you some comfort that mm -hmm. he's not going to upset the apple cart right. cause they'll sue him. You right. Know? Unless partners dad. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's <true>. So <laughs> it's like you say, the dynamics are different in every case. 
and if it's a family-owned business with dad involved, right? Yeah. Uh, there's probably not a lot you can do. Right, <laughs> right. So we mentioned a little bit about the temporary orders hearing. What do you guys think the judge has the authority to do with the corporation if the corporation is not a party at the temporary orders hearing? I don't think you can do much. I mean, you can, the court certainly has jurisdiction over the parties to the suit, no question about that. But as far as, you know, making orders as to what the actual corporation can do, not too much. Now, especially if it is a larger corporation, um, you know, sole proprietorships, I think it's a little bit of a different story because the court can certainly order the parties to to act in the ways, you know, in the normal course of business, things like that. But, you know, for larger businesses, especially ones with partners, if if the court even tries to do something like that, you know, the corporation is just going to say, you don't have jurisdiction over right. us. So. Right. Right. In other words, so the, the judge at a temporary orders hearing can't look at the spouse that owns the corporation and say, sir, you're going to go to your corporation and you're going to withdraw those retained earnings and you're going to give that money to your wife. That's right. Can't do it. Can't do that. All it can do is order him to make a lot of payments where the result will be he's going to have to go to that account yeah. and do it. Yeah. But to, to go a little more details about a sole proprietorship, I mean, that's a completely different animal. It's not really a business entity. So if, if it's established and the court's clear that it's a sole proprietorship, any asset of the business is it's just like an asset of the party. So it's fair game. And the court can order anything to be done with any bank accounts or, yeah. or you know, personal property of the business or mm -hmm. anything like that. Right, because it's not really a separate entity. Right. It, yeah. But with a corporation or a partnership, and we'll talk about this a little bit more in the next section, but it's a, it's a separate legal entity. And so unless it is sued as a party to the lawsuit, it can't be ordered to do anything. Right, the court has no control. What about if, if the non-owning spouse is an employee? I mean, can the judge at the temporary orders hearing order that the wife continue to be paid as an employee? <laughs> well, do you want the legal answer or what I've seen <laughs> judges do before? <laughs> Both. And, and the ethics question that exists in that The in answer that is no. The court cannot tell a corporation that's not a party how to operate its business. Yeah. Uh, but I've seen judges do just that. Mm -hmm. uh, tell them to continue to employ the person and rather than temporary support, keep paying that person their salary. And sometimes when you have family members, they're not even particularly active employees. Mm -hmm. They're just, it's another way to get money out of the corporation to, to the family. And I've seen that happen with health insurance, especially where mm -hmm. a spouse is an employee so that they're on the health insurance benefits of the company, which I think presents quite an ethical quandary if the judge starts trying to um, mess with making the company maintain that employee for health insurance purposes. Absolutely. Of course, that's dangerous in itself because if they're not working 30 hours a week or yeah. whatever the health insurance contract requires, they could get claims denied yeah. anyway whether they're being covered right. under the group or not. So what about, let's say we've now kind of filed the divorce. We're in the very early stages of divorce. How do we maintain the confidentiality of the business? Maybe it's a medical practice or a law practice, and you know the customers, the clients of the practice don't want their business spread all around town. How do you keep the 
angry non-owner spouse who has some information about the practice you know from going and chatting it all up all over town at the chamber of commerce meeting i think you would advise them that it's going to hurt them if they do that sure uh, although sometimes if you're they don't mad care. enough, they don't care. <laughs> Burn the house down, yeah. Is there any legal remedy you can have to keep the spouse from, you know, kind of harming the business by spreading information about it? You can try to reach an agreement or, or certainly approach the court for some type of non-disclosure order where the private information of the company cannot be disseminated and can only be used in very narrow uh, avenues, which is going to be for the purpose of the lawsuit, and then once the lawsuit's over, then any information they have is tangible has to be returned, returned yeah. and, and you know presumably to be destroyed. So, uh, in in my experience, courts generally will uh, put those in place. Um, there's no good reason why someone should be able to run around town and talk bad about a business or give the information to the uh, competitors or anything like that. So they're gonna they're gonna be put in place as a general rule. And so kind of moving that ball just a smidge further down the road, Ryan, what about trade secrets? Like, is there a way that a business can protect their trade secrets? Glad you asked, Michelle. <laughs> so, so there's actually a rule of evidence, Texas Rule of Evidence uh, 507, and it specifically deals with the trade secrets privilege. And it says, person who has privilege to refuse to disclose and to prevent other persons from disclosing a trade secret owned by the person. Um, unless the court finds that non-disclosure will tend to conceal fraud or otherwise work injustice. So what does that mean? I think that just means if you got some sort of trade secret out there, you can assert that privilege. And you can assert that, I believe, anywhere. That would be in courts. I think in discovery you could assert it. Um, and, and just tell the courts, look, this is something that is protected and I've got to do something to protect it. And I think that that will certainly get you there. Um, so let's say you uh, you were representing Mama who owns the the barbecue place and she has her her grandma's favorite bean recipe and nobody else has this bean recipe and it's so good it's won all these awards and the husband is uh, uh, upset because Mama was having an affair and the husband says well I'm gonna go down here to Dickie's barbecue and I'm gonna give them your bean recipe yeah is that a trade secret is that an example absolutely excellent i would say it is uh, yeah. i mean file whatever you need to i would say file a, a protective order something like that to prevent or a tro just to prevent the disclosure of that sort of information because yeah it's a trade secret however you look at it um and, and it needs to be protected you know there and there's been case law i don't know if you want to get into this now but certainly the case law has has supported that trade secret privilege when it, it when it applies to um you know to to ownership of and discovery documents uh case i have is in ray Koontz that's uh coming out of the supreme court of texas in 2003 and the courts specified that the just because a minority owner did not or because the minority owner had access to documents that didn't mean that he had possession and you know the the company filed an amicus brief in that case saying you know we can't give them what they're wanting and the court said they're exactly right because they were wanting these letters of recommendation that were going to disclose trade secrets and you know when there's be discovery being done in these cases and they're asking for these documents that are going to disclose these things um, 
the person protecting those trade secrets, whether they be an owner, an employee, an agent, they have ways to prevent to um, to stifle, you know, the, the disclosure. disclosure of that. Yeah. So yeah, um, that's a good point. Um, so so just to make the point, I probably should have said this earlier. Uh, for all the paid. Uh, uh, attendees of this webinar we will form a private Facebook group that you'll get an invitation to where we will post uh, all of these supplemental materials that we have that we may refer to during this webinar so we'll post the Kuntz uh, uh, opinion in there and uh, we'll post the trade secrets evidentiary rule in there so you won't have to go searching for it and any others that we uh, think are informative for you we'll post those in there too so whenever you pay for this webinar you'll get an invitation to that private group um, so let's real briefly we've got a couple of minutes left talk about buy sell agreements and what effect that has on kind of the process from the beginning of the divorce. There's a reason I put it kind of in this little beginning process. So buy-sell agreements, Robert? Well, buy-sell agreements are typical when you have partners in the business. and We encourage our clients to do that uh, in a non-divorce environment. So when you see one, that's a very typical. Uh, most buy-sell agreements will have a divorce provision in them. And most of the time the divorce provision only applies if the other spouse ends up with the interest so uh, there's many occasions where it doesn't really impact the value of the interest in the hands of the party that's operating the business uh, sometimes it does it just depends upon you have to look very carefully at the wording of those buy-sell agreements but they can give you some good ideas as to what a value might be. They'll have formulas or they'll have old appraisals or something uh, that give you some indication. So in the couple of cases that I read preparing for this, it seemed like there were kind of two concerns or two kind of competing approaches to buy-sell agreements and whether the valuation in a buy-sell agreement was effective as to the business valuation in the divorce. On the one hand, the Mandel case, you know, kind of upheld the buy-sell agreement, but it looked like the facts that were important in that case were that there were other times where a, a, a person had withdrawn from the corporation and that buy-sell agreement value had been used, where in the Miller case, it looked like there was some constructive fraud issues because the spouse wasn't advised of the buy-sell and and so there was some fraud questions about that what, what do you think about kind of those competing issues well i just think they're all very fact specific uh they're all different all the businesses are different and i totally agree we do see a lot of cases particularly with doctors owning interest in hospitals where there are lots of transactions done under the buy-sell and to me that's your number yeah you know you've got you got willing buyers, willing sellers, trading those interests on a regular basis. And in those, it would be a very restricted group of people who can even buy it. Correct. Normally, it can't you be have, sold on the market. You've got to be a doctor practicing in that hospital. You can't own yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, but outside of that, a lot of times the valuations are punitive. Uh, if you want to get out, you get out for book value, which normally is nothing. Uh, so a lot of times they don't really, it just, I think it's very fact specific to see how was that buy-sell constructed and, and is it reasonable or not. 
So yeah. Robert, real quick, so when you're valuing a business and you there's a buy-sell provision in there for a divorce, do you use that when you're valuing it or do you use the full thing? Depends on the facts. Depends, depends on, on who the you're fact. representing. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, tell you, I, I said that intentionally. I've been doing this a long time. Yep. I learned a long time ago. Uh, I'm going to give the same number to whichever side hires me. Uh, but I do look at the facts. And that's why I like you. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. But uh, in, in practice, a lot of times they're not appropriate. A lot of times they are. You just got to look at the facts of the buy-sell. A distinction I've seen in looking at buy sales are big entities treat the value the same for buying out a partner in a non-divorce context yeah. in terms of valuation right. as right. they do buying out the spouse right. in the divorce context. Yeah. And I think those are going to be upheld every time. Yeah. I agree with that. I, I think where you have the problem is you have this special category, which is this is what we do to the non-partner spouse when we buy them right. out. And I think that is very fact-intensive, and it's just, yeah. you know, how, you know, how punitive is it? So I had a case in which they had a buy-sell agreement, and the buy-sell agreement had value, essentially valued the business, you know, at a pretty low value at, of if it was just, if that buy-sell agreement wasn't in there, that thing would have been, you know, let's just say a million dollars. And I think it valued it at about 100000 And what was interesting in that case was kind of to Robert's point that the judge said, well, I'm not going to touch the business. And I'm just going, but I'll use the valuation, but without the buy-sell agreement, basically. So he says, I, if I don't touch the business, then that buy-sell is never triggered. So therefore, I'm going to use the bigger, the bigger value. And that is the normal buy-sell agreement. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so, and so, in that case, he just awarded a bunch of other assets. Right. And, right. and that's how they split right. it up. You get the you get the business, but at her number. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, that's our 30 minutes on the first section of the Divorcing the Business Owner or Entrepreneur webinar. So we will be right back with section two, which is talking about what is the asset and how does it get divided. We'll be right back. Keep in mind that this is a webinar that's aimed at attorneys. This is for continuing legal education. If you're out there watching this, this webinar and you're not an attorney, we welcome you to watch it. But remember that we are not giving you any specific legal advice. We cannot comment on any specific case or situation without knowing all the facts. So if you need legal advice, this webinar is not a substitute for legal advice. Please, please seek the advice of a lawyer as to your specific situation and get specific advice to that. Because if you rely on just what we're talking about here, we're being general, we're talking about general legal pr principles that may not actually apply to your situation. This is for continuing legal education only and we cannot create an attorney-client relationship just through the video camera, okay? Thanks.